I've got Steve on the line. How are you doing, Steve? Yeah, good, thank you. Nice to see you, Will. Great. Now, how's the weather in, uh, uh, is it Oxford, where you are today? Yeah, in Oxfordshire. It's a bright, sunny day here today, which is, uh, which is great. Uh, not that we can get out very much, but... Uh, play yes. Games. It always amazes me that even in the midst of the apocalypse, the sun still shines. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. No, I'm all, all energised. We're, uh, we're starting each day with uh, PE with Joe Wicks. I don't know if you've come across that as a, as a family. We're one of uh, probably half a million families tuning in or something, doing, doing half an hour of uh, light exercise in the morning to get us, get us going, which is great. Well, for, for those uh, self-isolating, got to pass the time somehow, get, get the exercise in. So that sounds great. Um, so, Steve, you've had a really fascinating career and uh, you've got some amazing adventure tales that um, we're going to hear now. And there's some incredible parallels from some of the work you've been doing uh, in leadership and in, in various polar and extreme environments that have immense parallels to the work that the NHS staff are doing on the front line during this pandemic. I hope so. Let's find out. <laughs> So let's let's start off, Steve, by talking about isolation. It's such a hot topic at, at the moment. And you've had a lot of experience of isolation in the poles and polar regions. What what was what are your perspectives on, on isolation? Isolation's a you know, it's a it's a funny funny thing because most people don't experience it until they're put in put in put in a position where usually without without much choice. Um I, I'm comparatively lucky because I, I, I chose to go on my own once to on an expedition to the Karakoram Mountains in, in Pakistan. Uh, I was due to go with a, with, a, with a friend on a mountaineering expedition, but he hurt his back. But I got all the equipment, the time off and everything planned. So I said, right, I'm just going to go and, and, and see what it's like to be out in remote wilderness on your, on your own for a few weeks. And and I and I, I spent several weeks up on on the Choctaw Glacier exploring on my own, and part of my the, the thinking behind it was to see if I found myself good company, and what it was like as, as, a, as a was a training agenda to see if I wanted to go on a on a on a polar expedition on my own. The year before, I'd led a team of three other people across the Greenland ice cap, and thought this was uh, you know trying to get to one of the poles was 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 kind of the next the next step. What I found was several things. One, I didn't. I, 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 it wasn't that I didn't find myself good company. Um, I, I quickly learned that you've got to have a structure in the day. You've got to be disciplined to a certain extent to to get jobs done. But there was no one to share the experience with. And the thing, one of the things I've enjoyed the most out of all the expeditioning that I've done, whether it's been wherever it's been in jungle or mountains or poles, it doesn't really matter. Is that shared experience? with the people that you're with and it's a really intense period of your life that you've spent usually a few months planning and training for and then you go away for a few weeks but the intensity of the experience lives with you and the friendships if they go well will live with you for years and years afterwards and i realized if you go on your own you're missing that and i found it wasn't that i was lonely i was busy um looking after myself in the mountains risk management changes completely every time i crossed a crevasse on my own i thought well if i slip and fall in here no one, i'll have just disappeared no one will ever find me you know will be no if a search party came they wouldn't the chance of finding me were nil so your risk management become you know becomes much more cautious and 
and that, that and, and and after that I chose to go on expeditions with 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 friends or you know sometimes I was working and guiding people I didn't know and I'd really contrast that experience with with working on on a on an isolated base in Antarctica where you've got a group of people but you can't actually go out you can't leave but you're you're stuck in the place because of the in, in, in Antarctica, the natural hazards outside. Um, our main base in Antarctica, a place called Union Glacier, is 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 on an active glacier with with crevassing. So we have a we have a, a, a safe camp zone, and we have designated safe routes into the into into the into the area. But you can't just wander off when you're when you're fed up with the people, your work colleagues, um, and. If you're ever fed up with your work colleagues, I should say, you you, you can't you, you can't go out. So you're you're stuck in a very um, what can be a high pressure environment because particularly there as well, there's no going home. You're working long long hours, and then your your home is the base as well. So the, so the dynamics of a normal work life environment and and having somewhere to go are, are, are changed completely and and that that impacts on people and we are lucky enough working in antarctica to be able to recruit people who thrive and love that environment um but every few every now and again we'll have somebody who, who for whom it's a you know it's a psychological disaster and they're they're stressed in ways that they they couldn't imagine that they would be before they got there and it just doesn't work for everybody and 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 I think that's one of the the themes of what's going on at the moment. You've got people working with great intensity in for long, perhaps even long, longer than longer than normal. Um, and and your colleagues' stress responses are unpredictable. And some people will be thriving and rising to the challenge, and other people will be kind of giving up and and really not coping with 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 how they're how they're how they're finding it. Mm-hmm. And so you spent a lot of time in very close knit teams in, in, in the Antarctic base, uh, uh, overwintering. I think is that right? Uh, I've done about ten ten Antarctic summers. Ten Antarctic summers. Is, that's, uh, how long are each of those? No, I've done nine. Did nine in a row. Wow. Yeah. So how long would you be in in the base for? Uh, for between three and four months. Three to four months. And how big was the team that you were in? You were with? It's it would be. It, it it grew over over those uh, over those seasons. We started off with probably less than twenty people, and ended up with uh, with more than fifty uh, colleague, colleagues and air crews. So it became quite a big. You know, and you were presumably living in quite close confinement during that that time, were you? Yes, we were. It's a it's a uh, our bedrooms are actually tents, so we'd each we'd each have our own um, small mountain tent as our as as our bedroom. So you had um, you had visual privacy, and on, on on a windy night, you you know you you wouldn't hear things. But other times, you know, the people who who snored, you'd, you'd know who they were, and they would cause ructions in, in the team dynamics. You'd have to get them to move to a, a a remoter location or down down the downwind end of end of camp. Uh, and yeah, you would know there's not that much uh, personal space, and, uh, and and some people struggle struggle with that. Were there any? Was there any characteristics of the people that you noticed struggled the most? Were there is a certain type of person that you felt found that kind of environment particularly challenging that, that didn't thrive as you might expect as other people did? I I think it's very difficult to. It's very difficult to predict. Uh, 
some people bring their own behavioural problems, which which don't solve things. I think of you know we've we've had one or two people who drink too much, and and and, and alcohol in moderation. You know it can be it can be great to have a party or a you know a small celebration, drink with your drink with your mates after work there. That can be fantastic, but if you're a, some a, an individual who's really struggling with with perhaps life at home or relationships at home or whatever it is and you you come to antarctica to thinking that will be a fresh start or to escape it isn't and all of those all of those problems that you're running away from are probably still with you and are actually compounded by the environment that you're in with no with no release so one of the whether you're going to work at a base in antarctica or go on an expedition or go to Go to go to go to do some very intensive work in a hospital at the moment. I think one of the keys to success is is getting your life at home sorted out. You know, we we pay our pay pay our bills, make sure our relationship is is secure, or you know, and and, and happy to be able to go away for for weeks and months at a time, and um and and then know that when you're there, you can focus and and live in the moment and work and and and, and work. And, and, and live as best you best you can with the people you're with, knowing that things are okay at home. If things are not okay, then I think that adds a whole level of stress because you're not in a position you, you can't do anything about it. It's just, you know, a worry and a nightmare. Yeah, that's really interesting, Steve. Yeah, and I, I, it sounds like you've witnessed some quite dysfunctional coping strategies to the stress of, of being in that environment. You mentioned some people drinking too much. Are there any other kind of behaviours that you've observed that have, have been really detrimental to, to life on the base uh, and for, for the rest of the team members? Yeah, I think, I think the, the other obvious, obvious, obvious thing is, um, is about ego and, and, and the size of your personality. And I love this phrase about, having, about being conscious of your emotional wake. When your impact with other people in, in, in a close-knit team or in, in a restricted environment, like a ship or a base or a hospital ward you your impact on other people leaves an emotional wake and if you're conscious and thoughtful about what that is you'll be much more mindful of 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 not having a negative impact on the people around you so when you're frightened or scared or having a bad day or just hungry and cold or whatever it is if if you're aware that the you, you can have a big negative impact on 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 team morale then you you'll probably check yourself and, and think about and modify your behavior beforehand and that's one of the key things that we, 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 you need to be successful in that environment is to be able to exercise some self-control you know particularly in 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 front of other people and if you're in a in a position of responsibility or management or leadership, obviously that becomes even more important because you're setting a setting a a tone for the morale in 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 your in your workplace. And one person who's uh, who, who's fed up, who wants to go home, who's not coping, who's stressed, they can be a you know a, a cancer throughout the whole of the team morale. And and one of the things I've experienced quite a lot as a manager in that environment. Is when this, you're you're aware that there's conflict between people. It's very it's often very hard to work out who the cause is. Who you know if you've got somebody perhaps like somebody who's effectively bullying somebody else, 
you've it's very difficult you can aware, be aware that you've got two people in effectively in con, you know with some sort of psychological conflict going on but it can be very hard to work out what the cause is and and, and then only when you've done that can you then work out what to do and sometimes it's removing that person from the team and everybody else breathes a huge sigh of relief and says oh thank goodness for that and other times it would be just speaking chatting to the chatting to that person and having a hard conversation with them about their behavior and probably trying to find out what's going wrong for them and giving them some support so that they can raise their game and not and, and not have such a negative impact on others. Yeah, I think that that concept of emotional weight really resonates with me, Steve, and my experience of working in cl- newly formed close-knit teams in, in confined environments. Uh, it's always fascinated me just how small actions uh, can be in, suddenly take on quite big significance and, and that, that sense of injustice and the, the, the politics can really, uh, really erupt uh, out, of, out of nothing, really. And I think for, for, for leaders in those environments, managing that, the, the different personalities within that team and trying to be uh, manage that situation in a, way, in a way that is deemed as fair by all parties in, in a reasonable, proportionate way, that's such a huge challenge, isn't it? And, and one of the things I, I find very, very interesting is when we're putting together teams of, of people to live and work together to run a, a, a base and operation in in an in Antarctica, you're bringing people together who, in their own teams, have got a hierarchy. And each year, we put to, we, we we reopen the base. It doesn't oper- our base doesn't operate all year round. So we've got a staff training period at the beginning of the of the Antarctic season. And effectively, it feels like starting a new business. You know, in terms of a, 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 you're rebuilding a team. You've got new people. You've got returning people. And the dynamics between the new people and the returning people is different. Some people might feel a bit threatened by the new, some of the new guys. And and so taking time to look after the team, find out about the, the individuals in it, and, and, and somehow in a really task-orientated, work-focused environment, make everybody feel that you've got time for them and to, and to listen to them and, and, and know that you care about them. Is, is absolutely vital. And the more pressure there is on getting the work done, the easier it is to pretend that you don't need to do that. But in, but you... And what, what do you think should be the priority, Steve? Do you think you should be prioritising the individual uh, individuals within that team, the, uh, the, the team itself or the, the task that, that that team is, the objective they're trying to achieve? What, what do you think? Well, my perspective in from... from uh, working in in, in, in in extreme environments is your job as an individual whatever your role is 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 to, is to you've got to look after yourself you're working in an environment that will do you harm and if you're passive in the environment you'll get injured and uh, and, 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 and be harmed and, and and then you're taken out of you know you you, you can't work and you become a you know a, a patient or a casualty, and, and 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 you need you need care. And so one of the things we we emphasise in in staff training at the beginning of the season is, however important the task is, you've got to look after yourself within it. And we all make mistakes. You know, I've gone out on and, and let and left the base to go up to the runway or something, and 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 had an inadequate clothing on. I've been, you know, I've left my big mitts behind by mistake, and it's much colder than I thought it was going to be. And when you, when you, and so our advice is there: you've got to stop. You've got to look after yourself. You've got to avoid getting injured 
in order to be carried to be able to be effective tomorrow and if you're on a skiing expedition to try and ski to the south pole doesn't you can't burn yourself out on on at the end of the first week it's got to be sustainable you've got to get enough food in you've got to get enough sleep you need to not get cold injury on your fingers or your nose otherwise you know a minor minor thing becomes a an expedition ending injury very quickly and so we you know say stop check everything look after each other check each other's faces and you know and, and do a lot of as much support as you can with each other but ultimately if you realize you've got something wrong and typically it might be just you know not having enough clothes on for the for the, for the weather's deteriorated and that means that the task is delayed by a bit because you've got to return to pick up some more things you've got to go inside and warm up go inside and warm up because if your fingers get cold, get irredeemably cold and you get frostbite you won't be any use not just tomorrow but for the next next few months as well so as a manager you're trying to make sure that people are task orientated and fit fit for work by supporting them to look after themselves and to encourage them to be be have enough self-confidence to say i put your hand up and say i'm sorry i've made a mistake i've got this wrong i need to stop i need to go in and i need to warm up or i need to take a break or i just haven't had enough sleep i need to you know, i need to take tomorrow morning off you know that's that's all fine people all all, all we want is that matched by good communications with your colleagues around you so if you've been up working all night and the other people don't know they don't think you're you're just having a line and being lazy because you've left a message you've told them yeah the last aircraft didn't land until four in the morning i've been up all night i'll see you at lunchtime tomorrow so you you've, you've created a culture where the individual team members they are uh, aware of what their own needs are and when their own needs aren't being met and and are able to vocalize that amongst that team so that that can be addressed yes absolutely yeah and it's interesting in in the antarctic uh, the arctic the, the polar regions where your ppe equivalent of, of personal protective equipment is is insulation so you've got to be having the right the gloves the right down um etc on the front line in healthcare at the moment we our ppe is face masks aprons etc and it's really interesting you saying about how you've got to make sure that your own welfare is safeguarded so that you you can perform uh the, the parallel for me would be yesterday when i was in, in practice i'm a gp and we had a, an emergency in in a room and i, I w- went to assist and it's so easy to dive in there uh, and just get stuck in but i it was a, a potentially covid positive patient and uh you know i needed to stop and take a time to, to put my own ppe on before i i got stuck in and it, it took an extra step for me to do that but I think it's so important because if we if we don't, then again, COVID that's me out for for two weeks and potentially you know, I infect other people, other patients. It's it's just a, it's it's self defeating uh, event. Yeah, the time the time frame is kind of I guess is similar. You're you're taking yourself out for 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 weeks, and if you get it badly, you, the recoveries recoveries uh, seems to be more more than a couple of weeks. So uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, um, and. Um, You've, um, as well as uh, being uh, on it, working out in, in Antarctica, you've been involved in a, a number of quite dramatic mountain rescues. I understand, Steve. Uh, I understand there was a time uh, in the late nineteen eighties when you were out running uh, on Snowdon, and something happened. 
Yes, that's right. I was actually up in uh, Snowdonia with a group of friends who we were we were getting fit and planning to go on a mountaineering expedition to the Karakoram Mountains that summer. It was uh, late February. There was snow on the snow on the mountains, and I went for a run from Flamberis up the 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 Flamberis Path, which is the easy the easy path up up Snowdon. And my plan was to just go up to the top and then descend a little bit and then go down the pig track, and and finish at our accommodation in in Capelcury. and I it all went well. There was some snow, you know. I was running in tracksuit bottoms and running shoes and had a fleece and I had no ice axe or boots or crampons or anything which you really needed for the for the for the the, the, the summit section. And so I'd been to the top and had come back down a little bit and there's a big standing stone that marks the top of a really steep section of zigzags uh, down onto easier ground where I knew if I could get down the first couple of zigzags, I would be fine. And I was standing there doing, I guess, a sort of what would now be called a dynamic risk assessment, which was, in essence, if I slip at the top, I'm going to go shoot straight down this snowfield and over a cliff out of sight. And I... I that didn't seem to be very very sensible. So I was I was I was weighing up um, whether I wanted to run back to Flamberis and then how many more, how many miles that was going to add to my my outing, or whether there was a, anything I could do to get get down to the zigzags. And uh, a walking party arrived, wearing you know country country clothing, uh, walking boots, no ice axes, um, and oh, I think there were, there were five or six of them. And the gentleman and the first five slid a little bit and did a left turn onto the first zig and were fine. And the gentleman at the back slipped at the top and slipped onto his back and to my horror just slid without really doing anything on his back down this snowfield um, towards towards a, a, a drop. And I shouted at him to kick or use your stick or do something, try and try and respect. But he he was he was. I'm just sort of frozen in, in 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 not knowing how to respond, and then he disappeared over the edge and was out of sight, and I didn't know how far he'd gone. And I was standing there feeling completely ill-equipped because I didn't have boots, didn't have an ice axe, I couldn't had no rope, and but I'd seen what had happened, and most people in in the area were climbers around or other walkers around hadn't actually witnessed what had happened. So I thought I've got a key role to play here. And just looked around and just started shouting because that was what need I need to do to get attention to a group of climbers over there, a group of walkers over there, and then two or three of the uh, two of the people from that walking party came back up, and I recognised the uh, the woman who was a a, a middle aged woman, and I and uh, I recognised her and said, "You're Jennifer Guinness, aren't you? Uh, was that your husband who who'd fallen?" And she said, "Yes." He's dead, isn't he? And I said, "Well, we we don't know we don't know yet," but I recognised her because she had been kidnapped by the IRA two years before and had been held bar for I think about eight days before she was released um, in, from she was kidnapped from her home in Dublin, and her husband had been had been attacked and and hit in the face by a by a gun when when she'd been kidnapped, and so I recognised her face from from the news, and that changed you know it was another layer of complexity, so I. I had to then grab some more people and say, please, I don't know what you're doing. Please, can you accompany 
this lady and her son and walk them to back to the police station in Flamberis. It's that way, you, you know, basically you, you have to find it. And I've got some climbers and asked them to use their ropes to go down the snowfield and, and, and see what they could do to help. And I thought, well, this is pre, pre many people having mobile phones. Um, I need to call for help. So I thought, right, I will start running back down the way I came and, and, and said to everybody there, right, well, well, let's meet up at the police station in Cranberries later, which seemed to be a sensible place to rendezvous. I looked these people in the eye who were going to accompany Mrs. Guinness down and said, don't let me down. You know, meet me at the police station and take, 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 don't, leave, don't leave them and take them all the way there. And, uh, and, and, and unfortunately, he had died. Um, her husband had, had fallen to his death and he had a, a fractured skull and uh, had gone, gone quite, a, I think, about 500 feet in the end. Um, and it really, it was really a profound experience for me. And, and, and the, at the end, and, and the, the, what happened next was then, was then meeting, meeting Mrs. Guinness and her, her son again at the police station a bit later on and, and realizing that her priorities were, I've been in the press, I'm a public figure, I need to get home. I've got two daughters at home. I want to get home before the media arrive on my doorstep, which was another, another layer of complexity. But it was a, it was an example for me of of situational leadership. Was I happened to be the person who had seen what had happened, and could easily have just not done anything, I suppose, and waited for them to sort themselves out. But I thought, no, this is an. We, we, they were dressed in as country walking gear, not in mountaineering gear. They were out of their depth in a in an what was then an an, an extreme environment for them, and and I knew what needed to be done and and just found it was amazing people people really did respond and and came to my aid and to the, the, the walking group's aid um and it was it was it that from that, that that aspect of it was really positive so clearly that was a situation that was completely un you were unprepared for that you you stumbled upon um, my experience of those situations is there's often uh, there's a, a void of leadership. There's somebody has to step into that void and start to make decisions and move things forward. And I, it's amazing that you were you were able to do that so effectively. Because we what we do now in, in in training is if you're if you're um, if you're on the on site or you witness a you know a fire breaking out or there's a you know some sort of incident, you're in charge until somebody else arrives to take over. You know, your job is to report it, look after people, exercise first aid, be the first responder. Uh, but you're not, you, you, you don't become the incident commander as and when, you know, resources arrive. And what was unusual about, about that was, sort of, you know, until a, a, an RAF mountain rescue helicopter arrived sometime later, you know, there wasn't anybody else arriving to take, to take charge. So you, you did that, yeah. Um, it, it, it resonates with uh, experience I had in the Pyrenees a couple of summers ago when I was doing medical cover for a commercial hut-to-hut trek and one of the participants wasn't really paying attention and she misplaced her pole during one of these winding mountain passes and just fell off an edge. <laughs> which is, uh, She just went down. She Luckily, she, she kind of slid down like a cat uh, and, and, and finished about 40 feet below Um and I was at the back of this group and the, the people just shouting. They were just like, medic. <laughs> and uh, so I uh, I kind of rushed to the front to see what was going on. There was a, a couple of mountain leaders there as well. And they were already uh, helping to assist and things. 
but it, it 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 it's amazing how you have to kind of suddenly switch into another gear you know you're not ready and, for it and, and and yeah the nature the nature of incidents you might have trained for it you might have thought about what you're going to do in that situation but that was a you know for me that was a profound a profound experience i guess in my in in uh, in my in, in my life because it was completely un, 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 unprepared and and yet i had enough confidence and enough prior leadership experience in other in other environments to um particularly in youth organizations to be able to think oh, this is me i need to do this so all of those experiences you felt prepared you for this moment that you were ready to step in and and, and take the lead and help that, that yes. poor poor individual hmm. and of course you went on to that was your training one of your training runs for your mount vincent summit is that right well that was uh that was training for to go to the Karakoram, but then then I, that led, let that led on to me having enough experience to go on down to down to Antarctica, where 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 you know things go wrong sometimes. And and they and, did, uh, didn't they? They went very wrong in 1996 um, on Mount Vinson. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes, that's right. So I I was then the uh, base camp manager at Mount Vinson, and Vinson's the highest mountain in Antarctica. It's one of the remotest regularly climbed mountains in the world. And was was no, was no um, overland access. Well, there is, but it would take you weeks to get to, to get there. So most people fly in, in ski equipped aircraft from Ailey or Antarctic Logistics main base, which was then about a hundred miles away. And I, I I was there to coordinate the communication between different guided groups and different expeditions on the mountain uh, to report weather and to be the point of contact by radio or satellite phone back to the main main base. And to be uh, be an honest broker of, of weather reporting to see whether it was it was safe to fly when people needed to come in or go out. And we had this terrible storm high up on the mountain, and very strong winds, very low temperatures, and there were multiple international guided groups up on the mountain who were all giving up. They were either, either coming down if they'd reached the summit the day before, or they were giving up because they couldn't stay in that storm and needed to get lower to safety and with some other people on, on at, a, at a lower camp and early that that evening after hours of monitoring VHF radio traffic of people packing up and, and, and beginning to descend I had a rough picture of where most groups were on the mountain but not but not not everyone I the satellite phone started ringing and there was an English voice at uh at the, on the other end of the phone, didn't say who they were, didn't say which group they were from, didn't say where they were, didn't say what the problem was, just said, we're coming down the head wall. And then the phone dropped, the call dropped. And that was all I got. But I got an, I knew I got a, a British speaking voice at the end of the phone. And we had New Zealand groups, we had American groups on the mountain. So I kind of knew which group it was. And 20 minutes later, the phone rang again, and I had another voice that I didn't recognise, of a different accent and just said we need immediate backup and that was all I got didn't say who they were where they were what the problem was how many of them there were what aid they needed or anything useful and I thought well we need immediate backup that sounds like some line he'd heard from you know some police tv show yes like mayday mayday <laughs> yes, yes okay and on the basis of those two half sentences 
we we launched a, a what turns into being a multi-day rescue um, to try and bring back five people who were who were then pinned down in the storm. And as ever, it's not just one thing that goes wrong; it's multiple things going wrong. So this group they had a guide, they were very very well led, they had a very good quality guide. He hadn't been on the mountain before. He was the last to leave the camp. The others were the other groups who, who, who could have given him mutual support had left before him. They out of sight, lower down on the mountain. Their radio batteries were flat. They were at their limits, keeping their group safe. And in descent, they, they couldn't really go back up to help. And uh, in, in the storm with hoods up and goggles on, this group had one of, one of them had missed a, a zigzag around a crevasse and walked onto a crevasse bridge and fallen down inside it fallen upside down um, and lost his lost one of his mitts. The guy did a great job, got him out, did a really good crevasse rescue, took about 20 minutes, given the circumstances of probably minus 40 temperatures and strong winds, it was pretty good. In that time, one of the weakest members of his group was, was in a state of semi-collapse with hypothermia. So they, and, and the man who got out of the crevasse was, was badly, had badly frostbitten hands, both hands. He thought, right, okay. Well, I'm going to take shelter here, call for some help, and 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 that will and will and that will be resolved fairly quickly. People should be able to come to my aid fairly quickly because they're only you know, they're not very far ahead of me. And they started digging a hole and actually found that they were on another crevasse bridge. And they dug a hole until that terrible thing where the hole appears beneath you, and that happened twice. And at which point they really thought, well, we we're in a minefield here of crevassing in this terrible storm. We just need to hunker down and wait for some help to arrive. The trouble was there wasn't really any help to come. Uh, and so at, down at base camp, where actually it was in a lull out of the storm, I, I went round um, who saw who was in camp, did some negotiating to look after some guided clients on the basis that it would free up the guides and they'd be able to go. And I had two colleagues, so two, two ALE colleagues. So we, had, we ended up with three pairs as semi-independent rescue team who, who I briefed um, in our little comms tent, told them what the story was, what we knew. And in fact, radio communications should improve as they got higher up on the mountain. And these people were really putting their own, with two Swedish climbers, uh, two guides from uh, New Zealand guiding company and my two colleagues. And they didn't all know each other, but they all on the same, you know, we fed them, gave them some food, gave them some fresh radio batteries and, and off they went. And they were really putting themselves out of, uh, in, in harm's way. They were being knocked to the ground, multi, you know, repeatedly trying to ski or, or up glacier. You know, wind speeds were incredibly strong, really hurricane force winds coming down off these big cliffs. And they couldn't get up to this, this, this team. And about 20 hours passed of increasingly distressed radio and satellite phone call messages um, with people you know, descending into hypothermia, they had no sh very little shelter. It was a desperate, desperate situation where we thought we were heading towards having having multiple fatalities. And very luckily, there was just a, a slight lull in the storm, just long enough for two guys who were at the front to get up, find them, and 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 show them the way down to safety. And once they got over, they were the, the grass area they were in wasn't that big. And after they got over the lip of and, and uh, of this slope and and down, gravity came to their aid, and they managed to get back down to 
to, to the low camp where they weren't yet out of the woods. People were desperately trying to keep their tents together in this big storm. Um, but everybody was rescued and brought back down a couple of days later to, to comparative safety of base camp um, where we were able to assess the injuries. And there was one, the one man who had fallen into uh, the crevasse had, had, had obviously badly frostbitten um, fingers and thumbs on both hands. But we had no doctor at, at base camp then. And uh, we had unflyable weather. The storm was raging. And so we had, it was a great example of telemedicine and advice from my medical colleagues at our, at our main base who, who, who told me what to do. And in fact, the patient was, uh, was, was himself uh, a, um, an, an ophthalmic surgeon. So he, he, he knew quite a lot um, and was really helpful as well. It was incredibly sterical through what is in, an in, intensely painful experience of rewarming frostbitten, frostbitten digits. Um, you, you ever have to do it, you give them the strongest painkillers you can before you start. And it's uh, hideously painful. I mean, that's remarkable, given the number of climbers you had out on the mountain in extreme conditions and the predicament they were in, in that kind of minefield of, of crevasses. It's remarkable that the, the only injury sustained was, was some frostbite and, the, frostbite and there was no loss of life. Yes, we, we, we were, you know, that was a level of, of, of stress on, on me and, and everybody else who was involved was, you know, we, it, it did look as if we, we may, may, not everybody would survive. Um, and particularly if we couldn't get to them. But in fact, you know, they were in slightly better position than we thought. They had slightly more shelter. They'd pulled a tent over, the, over them. Um, and modern mountaineering boots are so good. Their feet were at least safe inside, the, in, inside, their, inside their boots, despite the incredibly low temperatures and, and blistering wind speeds. It was, uh, it was been a hideous, and it was a very frightening experience for them. But... Uh, we, we we came through and it was a great example of of a, of a team being pulled together at the last minute um given minimum resources but good communications and 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 a, and a drive to succeed and a will to will to save save life and my colleagues who and, and you know and, and all, all, all six people who went out on that rescue team really put themselves in harm's way and really Put their, you know, put themselves at risk in order to try to go to the aid of others, which um, you know, which is worth remembering. Absolutely. So that that um, uh, that commitment to the team, that the self sacrifice that those the, the whole team made for 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 the for the good of others, it, uh, that's incredible. And your role in this, so you were coordinating this rescue response from from base camp. Uh, you were in comms, presumably, with various different. Uh, climbers who are out in in this storm. I mean, what was it like trying to coordinate that and communicate with the, the wind howling and everything uh, kind of going south on you? I I think I had about fifteen minutes of sleep in about three days, and uh, yeah, I had, and I had to log everything. I was reporting back to our our main base, who were reporting back to the rest of the world about what was what was coming, um, what was what. what and 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 no help could arrive we couldn't fly in we couldn't fly in any help we couldn't fly in any any more guides or rescue team or doctors or anything until it was all over it was several days later that we could uh, you know the, the storm storm abated and in the meantime yeah i was running around trying to look after the guided clients who, who whose guides had left them in my care and make sure they were fed and looked after and was a great pulling together of uh, of, of team 
you know of, of, of team from different supporters from different different guide companies and organizations to really really work together and there was a sense of mutual mutual support based on the fact that if it had happened to them the same thing would have happened everybody else would have stopped what they were doing put their own climb as a, as a, you know as a you know, cancel their own climb and just gone to the aid of aid of, aid of the people who needed it and and it was it was great the, the, the politics of these uh, private companies that are taking clients is they are in often in competition with one another it's a, it's a commercial operation after all and uh, that's really interesting how they were able to put their perhaps some of the, some of those politics uh, aside and just club together and just get, get that rescue done and uh, it's amazing how how that is a leveler how adversity like that really forces people to to, to just join together for that common cause Yes, yes, and the, uh, the the two the two Swedish climbers were an independent pair who were climbing and skiing the uh, the, the seven summits, uh, Martin and, and, and Olaf, and they they had been they'd done a massive day on the mountains, in, in the mountain and, and and skied back down in bad in, de, in deteriorating weather, and I, I remember them just asking, you know, do you mind if we have a bite to eat before we go out again, and they were. There was no question um, of, of them not being, re- you know, fit and able to go and wanting to go and help. Um, although they they weren't part of the you know the, the guide guide company mutual sort of support network at all. They were two independent guys, but they were brilliant, and I'm remain very grateful to them. They were, they did a fantastic job. Wow, wow, that's quite an quite an incredible story. So um so Steve. You were also in Antarctica the year before that, nineteen ninety five, on on Mount Epperly. Is that right? Well, I I wasn't on on Mount Epperly. I was at our I was at our main base at Patriot Hills when, similarly, we got a, a slightly mangled um, partial message, but definitely calling for help from a two man team who were climbing, um, unusually not on Mount Vinson, but on on the next couple of mountains mountains along the range mount shin and mount epley and mount gardner and uh, one of them had had fallen and was badly hurt with with uh, multiple fractures um and was se- somewhere several thousand feet up um steep mountainside and call came in we the position information didn't seem to quite met quite work when we put plotted it on onto a map um, but I was called to our operations, uh, what was then a tent. Uh, we had two doc- two medics, a doctor and a nurse. The doctor said, right, my job is to stay here. Your job as a nurse is to go if, you, if, you, if you're willing to. He was a, um, Ben Cooper, who's a member, another member of the WEM faculty uh, and a member of Edale Mountain Rescue Team at, at home. So we looked at each other and thought, mm, OK, yep, we're, we're willing to say yes, we're, we're willing to go. And the weather was a Appalling. The the, the 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 Patriot Hills Mountains, which give their name to our where our base then was, were a couple of kilometres away from from the camp, and you couldn't see them. And the uh, the Twin Otter captain, who was a, a a very experienced veteran pilot, said, "Yeah, we've got enough visibility to go." And Ben and I, we loaded up our rescue gear, climbing gear, um, and and took one other member staff along as a as a as a safety person to look after the the air crew when we landed and we flew through cloud and sitting in the back of the plane ben and i couldn't see anything for the first 40 minutes out of a sort of 50 minute flight and 
very, you know, and, and, and obviously the, the captain could see something, but we couldn't see anything out of the back. And we were looking at each other very nervously uh, about what we were going to go and do. And, uh, the, and we couldn't land. We couldn't, there was, the, the, the glacier was covered in, covered in cloud and we had to return to base. So a whole 24 hours elapsed between the accident, uh, guy breaking his, breaking his leg, and us going again for a second, second attempt at landing. And we landed. It was extremely cold. It was early in the morning. It was, it was about minus 40, still air temperature, and in shadow of base of these big mountains. And to our great relief, uh, the, the, the one able-bodied climber who wasn't injured had done an amazing job of lowering for I think several thousand feet, the guy who was who was injured um, and got him to comparative safety at the bottom of the mountain. Done a great job of of splinting his leg and giving giving him algesia. Got him into this tiny tent, but there was no room inside for the for the for the uninjured climber as well. So he spent the whole night walking around outside, walking around in circles. What was left of the you know it doesn't get dark, but it's extremely cold. Just trying to stay warm, presumably. And t- trying to keep the blood flowing until we arrived, and we and we didn't actually we got a box splint out, and it just shattered in the cold. It was just just disintegrated. I thought, okay, well we won't do any of that. Um, and we put him onto a rescue sled, skied him back down to our twin otter aircraft, and when we got back to the aircraft, we got a, a radio message in from our main base saying that the weather had deteriorated there, we wouldn't be able to get in. Patriot Hills. So we had to divert to Mount Vincent Base Camp, which is only a very short hop away. And and we had to spend a whole day there. And uh, so it was you know another 24 hours has elapsed after injury before we could get the patient back to our main base and at least stabilize him and plaster um, lower leg fractures there. And it was another few days before we got him into definitive care back in Chile. So uh, you've got some, you know, sometimes you've got quite extended time frames uh, can take a lot longer than you than you would think and and we learned a lot from from that ex- experience so at Vincent base camp the the little tent door wasn't wide enough to carry a stretcher in so we had to tip him on his side and shove him in sideways on a vac mat and stretcher and we and after that we said well we're not, that, that's not acceptable so we re, you know we ordered re, much wider doors and could could change the physical infrastructure of the base to be able to cater for um, stretcher cases, which we'd never, we know, hadn't, we hadn't had to do before. So it was always learning, and and it's really good to be in a responsive organisation that's that's willing to respond and and, and, and learn and, and and evaluate at the end of these incidents and trying to work out what we what we can do better next so yeah you you had a number of setbacks and delays there you missed your weather window your kit didn't perform as you'd hoped and you had to think on the hoof you had to just adjust you had to adapt uh improvise and, and overcome uh that's really uh amazing how you did that and and the biggest thing at the start was it was a very very intimidating situation to fly into thinking that two moderately ex- capable climbers were going to go to the rescue of two very very able climbers and we might have to climb several thousand feet or a thousand feet up some very pretty steep terrain and then improvise some lowering rescue you know on the hoof in in extreme temperatures in, in a shadowed shadowed basin in antarctica a long long way from help and it was uh 
that it was a psychological journey more than anything else to start with until it, you know it all it all it was it, it all, all came good in the end because the able-bodied climber had done such an amazing job of, of lowering his, his his injured mate down to the bottom and uh, and so we had a very easy and straightforward pickup but was made much more difficult by the by the weather and the lack of flying conditions but 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 it was it was a thought and and being you know being willing to think this person's in trouble we need to go and do what we even if it's beyond our certainly our you know our limits of our abilities probably frankly um we were willing to give it a go and uh, and had this sort of you know bond of friendship which grew out of that as it must have been a moment though where you and ben f- felt afraid where you you considered your own welfare and you thought well um am i up for this do i really want to put myself in, in, in that, that kind of risk how did you kind of deal with that I th- well, we we were asked whether we were willing to get whether we were happy to happy happy to be volunteered. Uh, we were the people who were on site. We were obviously the people who needed need needed to go. We were the best, the, 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 um, in, in, in limited personnel resources there in the base at the time. We were the best people to go. So we 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 both said made independent decisions that we would, and we and I implicitly trusted the pilots. We had you know, the the pilot Paul was one of the world's most experienced Trinotta bush pilots and polar pilots so uh i was very comfortable flying in in extreme conditions with you know with somebody who who's who is easy to put your put your trust in but if we'd had novice pilots then the situation would have would have been well the time frame for the delay would have been even more extended because we'd have had to wait for better weather before before being able to go uh, and it was a you know and, and and it was a great example of people who from different spheres of, of of work coming together to form a new team to go and do something do something special because other people were other people were hurt and were calling for help yeah there's there's a i sense there's an incredible sense of duty that you and ben felt towards the the other two teammates um and you felt that there was if you weren't going to do this then if not you then who Exactly. And I think that's the case for a lot of medics at the moment who are uh, dealing with with COVID patients. I think uh, there is that sense of duty there and that this is, whilst it is quite a terrifying time, uh, there's also, you know, we are, we are it, we are, uh, we are the response to this. And if we don't step, step up right now, then no one else is, is going to be there to do it. It's, It's on us. Yes, absolutely. Yes, I'm sure a lot of people are feeling that at the moment. But that must also be a very powerful feeling when you know that you know you can be, you can really change that, you can turn the situation around, you can bring all that, uh, all that experience and, and training that you've you've done over the years, you can really bring that into the, and, and do something amazing with it. Yes, so uh, that that experience of being being the guide out on out on rescue rescue missions. Uh, gave me the experience to, to get promoted and, and become the operations manager or field operations manager in charge of the whole base in Antarctica, which I did for the next six, six years after that. And my, uh, we, 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 you know, incidents continue to happen. People will get ill in remote places. Things will go wrong. And and having been the out on, re- on, on rescues was a really good experience because it, it, I, I knew what it felt like to be asked to go and do something. But equally, the the management of, of of deploying your resources and trying to work out 
how much to use, when, how to communicate with people, how to plan, how to get people together, you know, was was built on all of the stories we've we, we've been speaking about today. And you know, the the whether it's first aid training or complex emergency response in Antarctica, the, the, the concept about doing the basics well is so, so important. And to assume that people, you remember that people don't know what you're thinking. You've got to stop and gather the people around you, share your plan, consult with them. I remember having a, a group of people where we, we had a rescue underway. We deployed a rescue team to somebody who'd fallen in a crevasse. A solo skier had fallen in a, in a crevasse in a very difficult place to get to. It looked as if the time frame, time was hours were slipping by, and I wanted to deploy another team to go to approach from another angle, and and just pulled a lot of staff into our op, little ops room and and said, I don't know all of your experience. Tell me what it is. How are any of you got? Have any of you got enough experience on glaciers in the mountains? To form a second, you know, a form a second rescue team, which I really wanted to go to send, and I thought that might be the difference between this person surviving or not. And yet, I couldn't send, I couldn't put together another team without me being in it, and that wasn't my job to go. I needed to stay and stay and coordinate. Um, and we had a great result actually with the with the first team, who took uh, I think about six or seven hours to get get to her, but uh, the woman who'd fallen in the crevasse was was okay. Um, and you know we we had a great 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 result that day. But uh... Steve, you've definitely had your fair share of things going <laughs> That's wrong why I've gone in gray. very <laughs> difficult environments. <laughs> Did, can I can I ask? Does it does it get any easier with successive um, things going wrong? Do, do, do you have you felt more prepared with with all that experience that you've accrued? Yes, uh, I think psychologically, the pressure of of, of feeling that some you know but ultimately somebody's somebody's life or li- lives might depend on 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 how you how, how you what you do in the next few hours or next day you know is a, is a is, is still a heavy responsibility uh but but i i got you know you, I, I got used to it and didn't and, and didn't mind it and then and, and to an extent liked being the, the, te- the tests of tests of things things going wrong a little bit and I remember going and briefing one of our, 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 our doctors at Union Glacier. I can't now remember what, what what was going wrong. And she said to me afterwards, "You were so casual about it, or so relaxed about it. I thought you were joking, or I thought it, I, mean, I thought it, well, I assumed it was a training exercise." Because I said, "You know, this has happened. Please, can you go and gather, you know, g- gather your medical kit, get ready to get get to load a twin otter and go in, you know, in half an hour if you can." So, so when I became the operations manager, the my you know my perspective and role cha- changed, and but the fundamentals of, of, of as you said, whether it's first aid training or working in intensive care, but doing the basics well and doing the basics better than you ever done them before is you know is 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 just as true. But the but the role changes from going and doing to planning and communicating what your plan is. And uh, you know, in, in management terms, you'd say the first first role of the of, of the leader is to define the task. But when you're when you're dealing with an in emergency or incident response, obviously, it you don't need to do that. You you've just got to decide how to use resor- your resources and how many and when. And uh, one of the 
parallels with the COVID situation with working in, in Antarctica is, is the long time frame. It takes a long time to get ready. You've got to get your personal protective gear sorted out. You've got you've got you're deploying a, a rescue team by air. It might be they might have a five or six hour flight to get to injured uh, party on you know out, out on their expedition in the wilds of deep field Antarctic operations. So the time frame is is extended. Um, you've got long working days. We, you know, we used to joke we work till it gets dark. Obviously, there's 24 hours of daylight in the Antarctic summer, and so the the tasks of the leader or a manager of of keeping communicating the plan, telling everybody what what your vision is, checking that they're okay as things change, as other other events take over and other delays or other problems evolve, you gain more information. You have to keep making sure everybody knows what the latest version of the plan is and keep seeing how that's going to evaluate as you go. And as, as I was saying about this, uh, this one incident, we're thinking, well, it's not going well enough. We're not going to get there in time. What else can I do? Can I get a second second team deployed to come in from in that incident to the other, the other side of this crevasse field, which in the end, we didn't have enough enough experienced people to i wasn't willing to put them in, put them at risk so we had to we decided against doing that but keeping people motivated keeping people informed is you know is vital but you've also got to keep them fed and rested and send some people to bed because this is going to take all day or all night or three days or however long it's going to take and one of the first things to do is to think right well what am i what what resources do I need in eighteen hours' time? Let's 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 plan for that as well. And you know it, it's complicated and multifaceted, faceted, and therefore interesting and you know and challenging, but equally rewarding when it goes well. Steve, um, a lot of parallels at the moment being drawn between this current pandemic and wartime Britain. It's perhaps the last time that yeah, as a as a nation we were facing something massive and, and unknown together and um you've got some thoughts about the the battle of britain and some parallels that that has with the current situation yeah tell, what 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 was going on during the battle of britain yes okay it's a great um we you know we we've all, all grown up with with, with stories of, of of the battle of britain and, and and winston churchill's amazing line about uh the, the few and uh, never in the history of armed conflict had so much been owed by so many to so few. And because the Royal Air Force did so well in the Battle of Britain, it would be easy to think that the planning and the preparation for it had been really good. And and some aspects of it of it were uh, the, the development of radar and the integration of, of, of radar as an early warning system into the, the, the human eyeball, uh, the observer core, where has a network of observers spread across the, across the country to report in by, by, by phone of what was actually going on overhead. And this amazing analog um, data processing network of, of, of sector, of, uh, of the RF fighter commanders divided into sectors. Each sector had, had, a, had a controlling station and those responsible both fed and received information from 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 headquarters. So when an attack came in, um, 
squadrons were, were deployed to go to the right place, at, hopefully at the right altitude. The altitude was the most difficult bit of information. You often got that wrong. Uh, to to meet every every incoming well bomber bomber raid, but parts of the planning were were looking back now were were astonishing. You know, after the First World War, when the next generation of fighter pilot the fighter planes was being developed, the pilots wanted biplanes. The pilots because they're very manoeuvrable, we get more lift. But the aircraft engineers and and, and designers knew that that that, that was the future wasn't that wasn't that way. So you had to overcome resistance with the, the pilots to build the monoplanes, the, the Spitfire and the Hurricane. And a, a few very clever engineers realized that you needed much more firepower. You need more machine guns or um, better weapons to actually hit other modern aircraft and, and knock, knock them out of the sky, particularly the bombers. And it was a huge fight with the air ministry to get enough machine guns built into the design of the Hurricane and Spitfire that they were actually effective. And if either of those two things had gone gone wrong in the aircraft development, you know, the results would have been completely different. But the thing I find most interesting is, is, we, we, is the training of the, of the pilots, the pilots themselves, who were all, all very, very young men. And they were taught how to fly their aircraft, but they weren't how to, taught how to fight in it. And the air ministry had the had this basically combat manual of, of maneuvering uh, that was disastrous, and yet it, it, that was the policy. And you were in a you know in a, in a uniform service. It was you were disobedient if you didn't comply with the 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 the, 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 the methodology and the formation flying. And the the RAF started the Battle of Britain with with this. Uh, two sections making a flight and two flights making a, a squadron and, and the, the section was was three aircraft that flew in something called a VIC which is like a, a, an, a V formation where was a leader but the other two pilots had to fly in clo really close together so they're completely concentrating on not hitting the lead aircraft and every time they turned they had to reduce power to stay in formation which is the opposite of what you want to be doing in a, in, in a air combat situation you want maximum power on and what's so interesting is that the german air force started some years back with the same with the same um basic operating procedures some of them went and fought in the spanish civil war and they came back with having having realized what worked on paper didn't work in reality and they had two pairs in, in something called a swarm, which was a, basically a big line abreast. They had room to turn, they had room to manoeuvre, and they weren't doing this close formation flying. And when the Battle of Britain started, the German Air Force couldn't believe the Royal Air Force were flying in these stupid Vic formations. And they called, well, to translate the, the German, they called them lines of idiots. They were so easy to, to attack. And obviously the people who, the, the fighter command pilots who survived the first few encounters realized very quickly that they had to everything that they'd been taught was wrong and they needed to come up with some new procedures in order to survive and then and then they needed to develop those into how to take the battle to the enemy and to and and and, and to and to win in aerial aerial combat and yet there was no mechanism for spreading that information out through the whole of the royal air force and so the 
the, the, the squadrons who were very busy in the southeast over Sussex, Surrey, Kent um, were, were, were lear learnt fast and were flying completely different tactics to those in the Air Ministry's manuals. And yet when they were worn out and another squadron would be sent south to replace them, they arrived flying in their VIX and the, and the junior pilots would, 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 you know, would, were decimated. And it took a long time throughout really until 1941 for, for, the, for the story to get out that uh, we need to throw that manual away and, and, and learn again from everything we've learned so far. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a cliche in, in military training that, uh, you know, a, a, a plan never survives contact with the enemy. And the Battle of Britain is a great, you know, a, a, a great, a great example where some aspects of the planning were the best in the world. The command and control structure for deploying the squadrons was was the best the world had ever seen, and it's been a model that's been used ever since. But the the, the, the tactics of how to aerial combat hadn't, you know, were, were just a decade out of out of date at the start of the war. Wow, and, and in such a pivotal moment in our nation's history, Hitler was planning Operation Sea Lion, the invasion of mainland Britain, and air supremacy was the one thing that Britain had and had to maintain to, to prevent that. Um, and I think the incredible thing there was the way that the pilots reinvented the rules of engagement. They, they instead of flying in that V formation, they, they, there was enough kind of grassroots, bottom-up innovation going on uh, that they were able to find ways to fox the Luftwaffe the uh, the the, uh, the German pilots uh, enough to win those um, th those uh, uh, those dogfights in the sky and it's just it's an incredible story and I think in the NHS at the moment we are kind of trying to figure things out as we go along we are facing something also massive and unknown and, and incredibly threatening and I'm seeing some incredible. A rewriting of the rule book by frontline clinicians at the moment, um, right the way through from intensive care through to to, to general practice. Uh, for example, some of my colleagues are playing around with ventilating patients in prone positions, then um, trying different methods of of um, ventilatory support. Uh, in primary care, we're looking at lots of different ways of assessing severity of patients over the phone, and, and none of that is coming from the government. They are helpful; they are giving us advice, but it's an immense role in, in having to, to kind of think around the problem and, and but then also to try and disseminate some of that learning um, so that it can then be shared with with the rest of the, of the, of the community. Yes, yes. And lots of stuff which is, is, is known is being relearned or re, re, reapplied in this context, you know, put a patient on, onto their front and their oxygen sats might go up by four or five percent. Oh, well, why don't we do that normally? <laughs> it's, uh, there's lots of uh, lots of good stuff. It's amazing how these kind of being being, being innovated. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and the challenge is to share. You probably, you know, in, if from the Battle of Britain context, you'll have one or two squadron leaders or flight commanders who've really got it, who've understood what what's needed, but there's but there wasn't a mechanism in that structure then to send that information out to to the rest of the whole organisation very quickly. And uh, and that's one of the one of the that's one amazing. of the big challenges. I suppose that, that that's one of the main uh, one of the great things about this modern age is with it, with globalization and the internet, we are able to disseminate that learning. But it's just finding the right platform and, and creating the right communities for, for that for that to happen. Absolutely, and filtering out all the 
stuff information than the, <laughs> the uh, yes there's a lot of rubbish the, uh, out there isn't there yeah as well which is uh yeah yeah absolutely Yes, absolutely. Well, thanks, Steve. That's been a really interesting uh, conversation. If uh, is there anything else that you want to say to medics on the front line? Any advice that you would like to 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 give them from your uh, background in in polar exploration and leadership? I'm feeling extremely ill ill qualified to uh, to do that, other than uh, to pass on my you know my admiration and and and, and thanks to everybody involved in, in 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 dealing and battling with with with, with covid um and 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 to and to just reiterate the uh you know in in the the old management model if you've got a task you've got a group and, a, and an individual and all three need to be working well and in harmony and in balance for for things to go well so keep keep looking after each other you know your colleagues around you and keep looking after yourself we need you to keep working and be to be remain effective, which means you're looking after yourself and, and staying safe that you can keep doing your job tomorrow. And I think if uh, Steve, if you can go out in 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 an Antarctic storm to rescue two uh, fallen climbers, then hopefully we can go out into the hospital ward with our masks and aprons on and do do our bit too. <laughs> I hope so. Thank you. It's been great chatting to you. Thank you very much. Likewise, Steve. If people want to connect with you, reach out to you, how can they do that? Uh, I think the best way of contacting me for medics is probably through the World Extreme Medicine Office. Fantastic. Thanks for your time, Steve. Great. It's nice to you. Thanks very much.